difficulties here, but uh, thankfully this year is coming to an end. I think uh, for most investors, it's been a tough one as we've seen uh, assets being revalued across uh, all the different asset classes. And uh, the route has been pretty painful as trillions of dollars have been wiped out from the public and private equity markets, from real estate values, from crypto to the bond markets. Uh, there weren't many places to hide except cash. And even if you're in cash, you were losing six, 7% due to inflation. So um, there just haven't been places to hide. And while it's clear that the world's changed considerably, uh, some of the changes have been temporary in nature. Others will be um, a little bit more permanent. I think the hard part for us as investors is gonna be sorting out what is uh, more temporary and what is more permanent because we've seen it in a lot of different areas of the economy. And for example, supply chain issues have, uh, in many cases look to be or are being resolved or have been resolved where others um, in the sourcing of critical assets are just the beginning of a major shift, whether it's uh, uh, some of the rare earths and other areas. So I think we're going to, we're going through this shift that's going to be pretty impactful. And um, I don't, I think this is one of those points where we're at uh, for the global economy and for the world in general, that we are in a transition, a regime change that'll be felt for, for some time to come. So I think we're seeing three elements of change and the political one is obviously the changes in globalization and this battle between the uh, democratic nations, the autocratic nations and everybody else who's uh, in between those, those two uh, leading uh, polls. I think that's gonna be with us for some time. We're seeing that with the war in Ukraine. We're seeing that with some of the aggression in the South Pacific and in the, in the South China Sea. So I think that's another one. I think socially we're dealing with a, a whole different cost of living issue, which is putting strains on societies that are demanding more from governments at a time that governments have less to give. And at the same time, we're going through this uh, economic change, which is a major reindustrialization of the global economy. And when you tie it into the changes that are going geopolitically, it's creating a, a realignment of how economic activity will flow into the future. So I think those are the important things to keep in mind. There are major shifts that are going on. A lot of that's been brought about by the war, by the COVID, by sanctions that were put on against China earlier. It's a cumulative effect of all the sturm and drang that's gone on since really 08 and forward, and it's created this big divisiveness. So I think those are the big issues. We do see a number of investment opportunities that are gonna be very helpful and, and ones that you can apply capital to, we believe for some time. Electrification obviously is a big one. The digitalization of the world is gonna continue. National security is a, a major, major issue. And, Biotech is one of the hottest areas. If you can get it right, it's also one of the biggest challenges for due diligencing, but um, really some phenomenal opportunities with a lot of companies selling at single digit uh, multiples right now with really good growth prospects. And they're not the names that have worked in the past. So I think the other big theme is that there's going to be a major leadership change going on in the companies and businesses and industries that have worked versus the ones that had been driving us going forward. We still like North America, obviously, in the resource-rich nations. We think the, the big issue is dealing with um, and adjusting to and who benefits from a higher uh, interest rate environment and a higher inflation environment that we think is going to be with us for a, a more permanent period. Not that it's going to be the levels we're at now. It'll come down, but it'll be certainly higher than we've seen it before. 
And that, that means for us, this is a move back to quality and uh, strong balance sheets, reasonable multiples in a period where there's gonna be so much uncertainty. So just looking at global GDP, we were at 6% last year. Um, you know, overall, we're looking at now, um, you know, a couple percent. I think the uh, IMF was at 2.7% for the world. Advanced nations growing only 1% next year and developing nations only, grow, uh, developing nations only growing 2.7%. So it's gonna be a low growth environment with, with a lot of uh, uh, pockets of opportunity, but overall it's gonna be a tough period. So slow growth with high inflation is not a great mix for, for returns, but we think the in inflation is coming down. We think headline inflation is going to continue to be a bigger issue for Europe and uh, commodity importers, whereas in the US, core inflation is gonna be the big issue. And that's because our wage issue is so high and our labor market is so tight right now that that's pushing the wage inflation up. And with the, a lot of the renegotiations going on, a lot of that will be put into the system on a more permanent basis. But core inflation coming down is going to be a, a big issue in the US. But global inflation, the, the easing of some of the food and energy uh, issues should play out on the headline side, but um, we're still going to have some tough runs there. When you look at exchange rates, one of the big themes this year was the strength of the dollar. And one of the changes that's coming right now is as we've in the US are getting closer to uh, the height of uh, rate increases, which Powell said they have a couple more to go. The street thinks they're going to be cutting next year. I don't think that's the case, but I think what's going to happen is you're going to see the U.S. leveling off after a couple more rate increases, maybe 50 base points more. But the ECB came out today and said they're in the they're not uh, to the halfway point of their rate hikes. Now it's hard to know if they're halfway or not, but the idea that they're going to continue to be pushing rates up. Um, means that the U.S. dollar should be easing some of the pressures there, and which will take some pressures off the global system, and that'll uh, be quite helpful. Um, I think we've seen a big change in short-term rates, and I think this is one of the areas where a lot of the pressure is being felt. This chart really doesn't do it justice, but global short rates are up, you know, several hundred, almost 400, uh, 300 basis points this year. They've increased. 300, almost 400 basis points increase in short rates. And that does put a lot of strains on governments and, and puts a lot of strains on the system, but it also has made a big change. A couple of years ago, we had $17 trillion was estimated to be carrying negative interest rates. That number is now, now down to only a couple trillion dollars. So you've seen a major shift up in rates, particularly out of Europe. And that change is, is, uh, has had some pretty big impact on uh, on people and on returns. I think the other thing on the long end, you're seeing rates move, but not quite as much. I think that's a, it's fine, but the short end is really what's upending things. And that's really the government's trying to slow down the economy. But I think the big issue that's facing the US and, and others is unemployment. And we have an unemployment rate that is quite low, historically low, as you can see. Um, but it's got to come up. And the Fed's view is that it needs to come up maybe by a million jobs. Um, so that's probably going to be uh, close to another percent increase that you'd see there. And I think you're going to, or half a percent increase. And I think that's going to create some, some real strains on the system. And it really puts state and local governments in a tough spot as they're being asked to do more, having to meet climate issues, having to make the energy transition, 
and then dealing with people with the hardships they've had over the last couple of years and the support that they need, it puts the governments in a tough spot. But we need to see some movement on the unemployment rate in the U.S. There are other unemployment issues, and I'll point out one that is, I think, going to be one that needs to be uh, close an eye on, is that Chinese youth unemployment is up in the high teens right now. I think it's around 18%. And when you have such uh, transitions going on around the world and these lockdowns and reopenings going on, I think it creates some uh, a lot of uh, unease around the populations. And when you have young people unemployed at high rates, we've seen it in the past in, every, in many other countries, that leads to a lot of social unrest. And that is not something the Chinese government really wants at this time. So I think that's something to keep an eye on. Watch the unemployment rate. It's going to be the big driver. So I think there's some key questions for next year. How will China's easing of COVID policy impact growth? I think it could go one of two ways. It could either be a big shot in the arm for global growth, or it could be a disaster, depending on how uh, their infection rates go. But I think this is one of those key issues where China does next year will determine a lot about how the rest of the world goes, but not the same way as it has in the past. I think the reorientation away from China that businesses are being forced to look at right now and countries are being forced to look at makes China one of the big swings for next year. I think their focus is going to be on the economy rather than on the geopolitical stuff. I think they need to get their uh, their social system stabilized and, and economic activity is one of the best ways to do that. I think the other big question is how does the war evolve in Ukraine? Um, are we going to see the West um, fold and uh, give in to Putin or are we going to hold the line and really um, uh, continue to fight this thing through to the end. I think that's a big issue and it has not only economic uh, and political issues, but it has a lot of social issues that will come along with that because eventually we're going to have to decide how this ends and who gets hurt. And, and and is it the Ukrainian people or is it Russia that gets hurt for starting this? And then how do you deal with the rebuild and all that that goes on? How do you get people engaged in that? If the war goes on too long, it's going to be hard to get people fully supportive of that. So I think this is a major, major question we still have to resolve. I think the other one is, will inflation ease to allow central banks to slow tightening? I think it's not clear yet. Um, we believe that it's starting to come down, but the first two questions are really drivers for that because China um, sucking up a lot of materials if they reopen very quickly could create some inflationary pressures, but it also could ease inflationary pressures too. So you have to be really careful about looking at it. But I think the big thing for public market investors, and I think it applies to the private markets too, is the impact that all these shifts will have on corporate earnings. And what does that mean for businesses going ahead? And how do we think about valuations in this environment? And when do you feel confident to really get after it? So I'll just tell you from ARS's perspective, we see a number of opportunities in areas like steel, like the defense industry, where we know capital has to flow to do all the things that need to be done to bring us out of the problems we've had for the last several years, whether it's the war, whether it's the, um, the climate change issues. And, you know, uh, what one, one wind tower takes up in steel is, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of steel that comes out of the system. And because of the issues that are going on around the world and trade lines being, supply chains being disrupted, this is one of the areas that I think the U.S. and the West have a, a good positioning in that can allow us to deal with some of the some of the challenges going forward. But 
Um, we think it's going to be a, still a tough year. There are pockets of opportunity. I think the markets will do okay, but not great. Um, that the, the fears of a major, major recession in the U.S. we don't see unfolding uh, right now. We think the U.S. will has had a series of rolling recessions that has made it um, a bit of a challenge to uh, project what's happening, but we think industries have gotten hit already and are starting to come out of it on the other side, and we'll get past the COVID distortions and the war distortions and get back to a more normalized economic activity starting uh, probably in the second half of next year, moving into the beginning of 2024. So, Mark, with that, I'll stop and open up for discussion. Thoughts, questions? And I wish everyone a happy new year. <laughs> Hi guys, this is Yvonne. Sorry, my camera's off. My um, my regular picture looks much better than I do. Um, first thing in the morning. My question to you is, is, is anybody seeing any alternatives to steel? Um, what are the other alternative metals that are coming up? I think there's a lot of discussion about those. Well, I have seen continued talk about hemp in construction, but uh, you know that's a, it's a it's a big issue. Well, I'll give you one where it's going to be very difficult. And you look at the uh, the uh, chip facilities that are being brought into the U.S. to be developed. They can't have vibrations in them, so the amount of rebar that goes into each one of those plants. Mm -hmm is far greater than it is in any other building that's being developed. So you can see the demands continuing to grow. The wind towers are, um, I'll have the, I, I had the number, I forget, but it is a lot of steel goes into one wind tower. We're building tons of them. The amount of copper that's gonna be needed going forward, they, you know, we keep talking about replacing copper, but we still haven't done that in to any degree. So I think that a lot of the natural resources are gonna to continue to be uh, as important as they've ever been, if not more important. Well, and steel, it's, it's again, why, why US versus other parts of the world? It's gonna go back to energy costs. Yeah, yeah, and that is a big issue. The US energy advantage is, I think, one of the things that um, people really have to focus on. It's actually the Achilles heel of Europe right now. It um, is. It's also not, it's not China's strong point either, even though they, they use a lot of energy, they haven't been very efficient with it. So I think there are real opportunities for uh, the US to, to pick that up. And um, I have to check the number, but I think the steel industry in the US, um, the combined market cap is about $100 billion. So just which, think about that. Which takes you to met coal yep. and some other parts of the yep. supply chain. And, and EV supply chain. Sorry, Janan, go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to add some additional alternatives for Yvonne's question. Um, we're seeing composites as another growth area still as alternative to steel. Even as a rebar alternative, we're seeing increase in activity in basalt fiber um, as like mini bars, if you will, that are mixed with the concrete for reinforcement. Um, and then also some anti-seismic uh, properties as well. Also, uh, carbon fiber has been known, but with the you know anti-carbon kind of thing, basalt is looking kind of interesting, especially if there's a possibility for use of induction heating to manufacture it. It could increase efficiencies on the level of like um, fiberglass, right? So composites is one thing we're seeing a trend. 
Good point. Mark, Rob has a question. He always has a question. Hi, Rob. Hey, guys and hey, ladies. Good morning. Um, so last week, um, I bought this this point about um, the release of Brittany Griner. And I guess, Steve, you saw the last couple of days, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Putin has come out with with thoughts of openness, uh, I guess public thoughts of openness to to, uh, to talk about um, to talk about Ukraine. Um, yes, yeah, I, I did see today that Larinov said that they would be uh, open to a, uh, a settlement as long as Ukraine gave up everything that right they have right now. So it's right, and, and I, I guess where I was coming from, and, and Mark, I welcome your input. I'm not sure if Adam's on, but you know, I, I think. The thought last week was this was a humanitarian move on the Griner side, but you know I think we all recognize um, you, know, uh, uh, you know this is you know the the humanitarian aspect is is less effect. Um, uh, I, my my question is, do you think this is real? And um, I guess secondly, I mean my thoughts of the release of Griner was I thought that was less humanitarian, more strategic. With respect to a, a appeal to women, appeal to um, diverse sector like LBGT, more so appeal to things like commercial enterprise like sports. Jack, you know, you recognize that with a professional athlete like Reiner. So that, that that's that's a little bit of thought there. I, th I thought this was more beyond humanitarian. I wanted to see how things played out, and lo and behold, a week later, there was some developing news. So uh, thoughts there. Well, one thing uh, China has been pushing. Uh, Putin to try and behave better, maybe end the war, potentially. Um, Putin came back and said, you know, yeah, I'm open to it, but on these terms, which are terms that he knows Ukraine can't agree to. Um, and the hope is that they force the West into pushing Ukraine into agreeing to an unfavorable deal. And I think that's really one of the big issues as we go into next year is, um, does the West hold and, and support Ukraine or do they fold because of their own strains and I think that's going to be one of the big determinant factors for what happens going forward. But I think a lot of that Rob is coming from China, not from Putin wanting to do anything. And I'm going to be raising my hand, but I just I, I I won't I'll do it next time. I just wonder I heard from some another another pundit or another conversation that actually the US should be motivated, will continue to be motivated to supply arms to to Ukraine because it does support our manufacturing facilities. I mean, I mean this is not a negative, it's just that it's like when you when you support a country during what, what's going on, we do benefit to some extent. So yeah the US is the missile is one of the missile manufacturers of the world. So it is a it's not bad for our defense industry at all um, when there's war. Um, and we got we already have to refill our inventories from what we've drawn down. Uh, so it's it's uh, it does help, but it's I don't think that's the goal. The the other quick thing was that you know this was after the Ukraine president addressed uh, the uh, the uh, I guess the both the Senate and the House last week in Washington. And that was, you know, in, in some independent reviews, you know, sort of the worst nightmare from the Russia side, although there was some resistance by some Republicans on not attending because of unlimited spend. 
but you know we've got some defense assets and i you know hear you loud and clear it's it, it's you know that is something that is you know, you know bullish to the extent that defense has become more esg friendly so yep i think the other issue is uh to yvonne's point our home manufacturing system is going to benefit from our uh, energy advantage that we have and the need to get to more trusted and secure supply chains and many of our western allies will certainly after their experience with russia feel um, that the u.s might be a better alternative for that um, but not solely and i think that's the thing that you have the the democratic nations the autocratic nations but you also have everyone else that's not a major player and you know whether it's the african nations latin american nations parts of southeast asia um, the Middle East that are all looking for how do they win and how do they benefit from this. And the way they really benefit is to play both sides against the middle and, and you know, take the best you can from the West and take the best you can from the autocratic nations and, and do what you can there. But um, I think you're starting to see a lot of shifts and you'll see some new uh, relationships formed over the next year or two uh, from a geopolitical perspective that'll be very different than what we've seen before. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting, the Zelensky speech, and and I, I I'm seeing that there's some wording from the new the, the new House leadership that they might not have a, a full blank check, but it was really rather bipartisan, and huge amounts of money, and and you saw with Macron and the Germans, they wish they could have such a backbone, but they have no defense. They were they're solely reliant on NATO and and our backbone. But this this is the time. This it's a pivotal time. It just seems like the investment we're making into Ukraine is a pittance compared to what Russia has to invest in that war. And that in terms of return on investment in establishing ourselves and taking down one of our main uh, main enemies and who we're opposing. I mean, it, it, the, the budget that we're spending in comparison to our total military budget is very minimal. I mean, it's a, it's a great return. I saw something, I don't know if the number's right, so maybe Stephen or others can help. I saw something to the tune of what, if this 40 some billion goes through, we may be up to $100 billion of sending money to Ukraine. And this article su suggested that Russia's annual budget is less than that across their entire military. Has anybody ever seen any numbers along those lines? Uh, the Russian yeah, this is, this is Hamlet. Those, those numbers are, are generally accurate. The one misconception though is we're not sending buckets of money to Ukraine. We're actually sending very little money to Ukraine. Ukraine. What we're doing is in essence, giving the defense industry the opportunity to send uh, to Ukraine um, just dozens and dozens of weapon systems. and and units and devices that were set for destruction uh, and we're gonna be written off. We're actually gonna get, we're, we're actually getting um, some, some money back for, and that's freeing up the defense contractors to go ahead and redeploy those assets into near age weapons. So um, your point there, uh, Joel is spot on. Um, if, we, if we wanted to stop Ukraine and we wanted to deploy troops and put boots on the ground, uh, the amount of money that we would, we would be spending and the amount of lives that we'll be putting at risk um, from the U.S. would be would be would be tremendous. Um, in this case, we have uh, millions and millions of, of Ukrainians 
um, who um, are vested and they want to fight the Russians and they're willing to do it. And what they're looking for are arms and weapons from us. And um, I hate to say it, but when you look at conflicts like this, one of the things it does do is it does generate an, econ an economic activity. Um, so we are going to benefit from that in the long run, I think. So does anybody have a concern that by taking this next step and sending Patriot missiles that we're obviously going to have feet on the ground because these systems are very complex systems and chances are now you're, you're, you're starting those first steps towards getting closer and closer to that danger zone where rather than have the Ukrainians fighting the Russians, that you'll have the U.S. on the ground and the minute, you know, U.S. troops that are actually U.S. troops and not mercenaries get into the conflict and we have wounded soldiers in some capacity, doesn't that tend to, you know, create potential issues moving forward? It does, but we've mean to, to assume that we don't have active duty boots on the ground in Western Ukraine, um, uh, for sure in Poland, obviously, uh, would be naive. So are, are we already there? Uh, it's safe to assume that there's probably Western interests already there. Uh, in Western Ukraine, um, but in, in terms of kind of the front line, not as much. But the Patriot defense system isn't something you put in uh, in, in in the eastern provinces. It's something you put around um, the, uh, the the power plants, around the civilian infrastructure, around the cities that Putin is trying to attack from a distance. So if we think we have um, a system in place that's going to be able to absorb um, thousands and thousands of inbound rounds from Putin. Um, and have minimal risk to our people. That's a bet I think the administration is probably willing to take, willing to take because we're going to take very little damage. Uh, we're going to expend a bunch of rounds. And what Putin is doing is, is just continuing to burn through inventory, which he's starting to have less and less of, both in, in, in the ability to, to manufacture domestically, but as well as getting replenished from, uh, from, from mostly Iran. Because as far as I know, um, China has, has been very... Um, the right way to put it. I, I don't think they have been supporting Russia from, from direct military aid, uh, which is where they need it most right now in terms of, 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 of ammo, weapons, and artillery. Hamlet, two-part question. One, though, I understand the Patriots don't work so well against drones. Uh, what, what are the, what's the best drone defense um, capability that we can provide? Uh, selfishly speaking, it's one of the, it's one of the, it's one of the companies we're an investor in, but you're starting to see, um, I think Raytheon's got one, Epris is, is one. So you're starting to see some, some conversations around ITAR restricted, um, uh, platforms being sent into Ukraine. In those cases, they would have civilian advisors, um, uh, making sure that those, that those systems are being manned and operated, um, by either our guys or people we have control over, um, yeah, Patriots aren't meant for for drones. Um, the, the good thing about the drones is a lot of the drones that they're getting, uh, particularly from Iran, um, what they did, Iran, if you guys recall, during the Afghan and Iraq wars, um, were able to divert and, and shoot down a couple of our drones. And they've gone and, and backward engineered a drone technology that was 15 years old. They've made some modifications ever, ever since, uh, since then, but they're not nearly as accurate um as as what we have on our side um so it's 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 literally launching a large number of drones towards a target try to take it down for those uh, we do have conventional defenses uh there aren't not necessarily not necessarily patriot systems but systems that, that that'll do the job and i i would assume those are already being deployed there 
Fair enough. My, my second part was what's happening in Iran. I, I saw that uh, Musk noted that he's given a hundred starlight satellite yep. um, uh, dishes so that to uh, the resistance. Yeah, I'm getting ready to put up my next Iran uh, update, but um, I, I think what we're what we're looking at in Iran right now is a status quo um, for the for the foreseeable future. I think I think the civilian population has basically they're done. Uh, they're not going to give up. Um, I don't think you're going to see massive thousands of thousands of people in the street protesting. Uh, because that makes them an easy target for the regime. But I think you're going to see continued strikes, um, continued flash mobs, continued uh, resistance against the regime. Uh, the issue here is what does the regime do on their way out? Uh, the Shah's son has become a lot more vocal about trying to talk about unifying um, the, um, the various different factions that want change and resistance um, to, to unify, uh, to act as, as, as a front against the mullahs. The issue with Iran, though, right now is, and I don't know how much how much credence to put into this, but you're starting to see here you're starting to hear JCPOA come up again. Um, and I don't know if this is Iran pushing this or if this is Biden trying to grasp for some sort of a foreign policy victory in his last two years uh, before uh, before he uh, he's up for 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 reelection. Um, that would be an issue, obviously, because um, that could set a whole bunch of dominoes in motion. Uh, whether it's uh, an escalation of conflict between the House Assad and the Iranians, or um, kind of the uh, the unconventional thought is, do the Turks and the Azeris, along with the Israelis, now take action, giving the uh, the conventional Sunnis or the House Assad in the Gulf the uh, the high ground of not getting involved in this conflict? So that could get that could become a, an issue. Uh, absent that, um, I do think I, I can, I, I'm convinced this regime is done. Um, the issue is is when do they get removed and how much damage do they do on the way out? That's kind of the un, un, unforeseen issue, or that's the the unknown there. The next big seminal event, I think that if it's not JCPOA, the big the next big event that I think could kind of escalate tensions inside Iran is going to be the death of Khamenei. Um, he's in his 80s, cancer survivor. Um, he's not in good health. He took about a month off in September. Uh, unknown exactly what that was for, but when he dies, there is going to be a power vacuum within the uh, the hardline leadership of of what what does Iran look like. Um, and there's everything from speculation that that Khamenei uh, names his son as the heir apparent, which I think half of the, the the clerical and military industrial hardline complex does not want. So um, that could um, introduce an interesting scenario here in terms of what happens inside Iran. Um, in terms of why this matters, though, you guys heard me talk about this prior. Um, Iran, I do think, um, is our single biggest foreign policy, uh, Rosetta Stone. Um, if we fix Iran, we've neutered Putin um, and, and the countless amount of support that he gets uh, from Iran. We've cut out funding and material support for Assad, um, for the, the Shia in Yemen, and obviously Hezbollah. And we've taken a significant trading partner, energy partner off the table for China. And I think the Gulf uh, Arabs and MBS do want some sort of a detente and, uh, and a renaissance in the Middle East. And they are happy to do that with the Iranian people, just not the existing regime. So the longer term implications of what happens to Iran, I think, are tremendous and aren't really being considered. And Hamlet, if you play that forward, the timing of that, given the uh, struggles in the developed nations, economically uh, that they're all dealing with now, the timing would be quite good for the uh, Middle East to, to take advantage of that economically and, and raise their stature. So Absolutely. An would. opportunity to have a big 
bigger place that they've been looking for for some time on the on the initial stage. And what role is is Turkey playing? Do you, how do you see Turkey in all of this, Hamlet? Turkey is is an interesting spot. Um, I think Erdogan's going to have some issues in 2023. I believe he's up for election. Um, I think he survives that election potentially, but uh, there is a uh, there is a divisiveness happening in Turkey where I think Erdogan and his party um, want to um, align themselves with 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 China and with Russia. But I think the uh, rank and file populace uh, do not. Uh, they want to be more nationalistic. They don't want necessarily want to be pro U.S. or pro Europe. Uh, they want to be pro Turkey, which does not which means not being in bed with uh, with China or Russia. Um, I, I I don't think Turkey wants a. I think Turkey. Turkey probably does better with a, a, a stable Middle East, obviously, um, and has and has a, a, a better relations with the uh, with the House of Saud and the Iranians. So do I see a scenario where Turkey does take action against Iran um, if Iran goes down the path of a nuclear state? That's that's kind of the. That's where we're going to put it. That is a highly plausible low probability event that I think could upend up, up in the apple cart in the Middle East. Because if you look at the, the way the Middle East has been run over the last 200 years, you've had three conflicting power centers. You had the House of Saud and, and, and kind of the, the, the House of the Sunni. Uh, you had the Caliphate and you had the Iranian government. And throughout the last 200 years, those three sides have never been on the same sheet of paper. And two have always aligned against the third. So... Um, that's going to be the interesting piece to see where Turkey ends up falling. Do they go down the path of nationalistic and continue the out of Turk reforms? If that happens, then maybe at that point it is some sort of an action against Iran. Or do they go ahead and side with uh, with uh, with Russia and China and, and Erdogan holds power? And if that's the case, then I think they sit on the sidelines and, and, and just do what Turkey does best, which is try to play all sides. Fair enough. Forgive me, but I I don't understand why you think the current regime is done. The Iranian regime, indeed. I think the people have. I think the people have, have, have had it. Uh, what you're starting to see right now is the people is have had just, it. I'm sorry. I agree. Concur. The people. Yeah, have they, they they've had it. So um, I I don't I don't think this 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 resistance or this this movement for regime change, or I'm sorry, reform is is going away. And I don't think the people are going to want this regime in, in power. So whether it's six weeks from now or, or, or and it's, again, this, this could, I mean, I say they're done. I'm not saying they're done. And by 2023, at some point, um, I can go back to Iran because it's a, it's a Western leaning country. No, I'm not saying that. I and mean, this could take years for this thing to unwind. But just like Putin, um, I think both of these regimes are done. The issue is going to be how destructive, how violent um uh it gets before they're taken off the stage and the timing of it um russia um i mean there's a scenario that putin does, does survive and last uh for years to come uh same thing with 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 iran um but i also see, see there are scenarios where where this thing escalates and uh very quickly unravels and you do have regime change in both countries but in, in iran the society's had it um what you haven't seen in prior demonstrations and protests in iran is attacks against the clergy. You've not seen that. You've not seen attacks against Khomeini and, 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 and kind of the, the Islamic, uh, the, 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 the idols of the Islamic Republic. What you're starting to see now is that happen. You're starting to see mullahs 
and clerics uh, who are walking around in robes and turbans are being advised not to do so because they're being targeted and harassed by people in the streets, something that would never would have happened three, four years ago. You're starting to see direct attacks against posters and, and images of, of Khomeini and Khamenei, something that never would have happened in Iran uh, four, five, ten years ago. I think the society overall is done. Um, if you look at the demographics, over 50% of the Iranian population is, is under the age of 50, and mostly are women, and none of them were around when the Islamic Republic came to power. The country has been secularized uh, over the last 25, 30 years, uh, and, they get, and, and to the point now, they don't want the theocracy in power anymore. Hamlet. Uh, uh, all that seems to be true, but but what is, I mean, I guess what I thought I learned in Egypt is as long as you have the army, that doesn't really matter. Correct. Correct. So there's two there's two parts to that to that consideration. One, uh, you have the conventional Iranian military. Uh, their job is to defend the borders. And then you have the IRGC, which is the Revolutionary Guard and the Besiege. They are the Praetorian Guards of the of the Islamic Republic. Their job is to fight um, all all enemies, both domestic and, and foreign. Um, the IRGC has taken over the country um, from a military, industrial, and energy complex standpoint. Uh, a handful of families, five, seven, ten families, control all the wealth in Iran. What you're going to see happen, I think, is at some point, um, the IRGC and, and, and elements within, the, within the, the industrial complex, so to speak, are going to wake up and realize that they have much more to gain by helping remove the clerics um, in the theocracy out of Iran and maintain a kind of a, a Russia-like oligarchical control over the entire country, then risk being deposed, uh, whether it's by foreign action or by the uprising of the people. And you're going to see some sort of movement against the clerical establishment. That, I think, is a, is a, is a highly probable scenario, especially when Khamenei dies. So you'll see a part of the military, part of the Praetorian Guard, I think, splinter away and, and make a some sort of a covenant with the people and say, okay, we're gonna get rid of the clerics, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna loosen reforms, we're gonna bring back rock and roll and MTV and, and we're gonna we're gonna integrate with the West, but we're hundred percent in charge of this country, full stop. That's that's the that's the now, just, that's just the best immediate outcome, I think. Let, let's play that out. Now, what does that mean? I'm just trying to think of in, investment strategies. Um how does that play out uh, with both like the the, the political, um, I guess the the power bases of the of the region? Because you know it seems to me that you could have a renaissance of of the GCC. Uh, Absolutely, you could. Absolutely, you could. Um, so, like I said, I think I think MBS the Middle East wants some sort of a Middle Eastern renaissance. They don't trust a theocratic um, controlled. Iranian government that views the Sunni as the heretics that they want to take off the face of the earth. Can't really be partners with like that. Now, a bunch of Shia who care about themselves and greed and money first over theocracy and, and don't want to bring on the end times. Yeah, I, I can strike a deal with those. So if, if that starts to happen, then I think you start seeing an opportunity for a massive boom in the Middle East. Though I don't want to see Iran be run by a bunch of oligarchs. Um, that I think is is a better immediate outcome than a massive civil war that causes millions and millions of lives um, uh, to, to 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 be lost. And, and, and Fair it's, enough. it's just a bad it's a bad scenario. So Andrew I, Andrew Voss has a question or his hands up. Separate but related question, and maybe better reserved for Adam, who I don't think is on the call. 
To what degree do we believe the reports of uh, Putin's cancer? And let's say that does head down a bad path for him. How does that look with the power structure in Russia affecting this whole paradigm? Any yeah. thoughts? Yeah, that's a good question, Eric. Um, there's been all sorts of speculation of whether whether Putin has or has not been sick. It's hard to argue that he hasn't gone through, gone through something. Just the paranoia around COVID, I think, gives you a lot of indicators that there's something there. Now, whether it's into some sort of remission, who knows? The issue with Putin is is kind of that whole Mad King syndrome is, is on his way out. What is he willing to do to the country? Um, there's been... I guess a longstanding understanding that there are systems in place that by the time Putin or the czar or whoever says go, and the minute that you have um, nuclear weapons launched or whatever, there's enough layers there that somebody's going to rise up and say, no, we're not going to do this. Um, I think the more realistic scenario is Putin has probably deposed somebody within the inner Praetorian Guard that sees this as their opportunity to, to assume power. The issue is, though, is is the people who come to power in Russia um, are going to be maybe a degree or two more sane uh, than, than Putin or more, um, what's the right way to put it, uh, less inclined to, to light the world on, world on fire, but we're not getting a better outcome there. You're not going to get a, a significant regime change. Where in Iran, I think you're, you have an ability to, to pivot there. Um, the, the hope you have there is whoever takes over um, in Putin, uh, for Putin, is younger um, and understands that they they sit on a massive uh, amount of, of, of wealth. And uh, the best way to not to fuck that up is not to start a world war. So you see some some de-escalate. So and it begs the question there. Sorry to interrupt you. It does beg the question uh, of earlier of the Iranian people. Well, how to what degree have the Russian people had enough? You know, yeah, over the span of time. Yeah, that. That, I don't, that that's harder to handicap. Um, and until you see, even if all of, all of Russia is up in arms, um, until you see demonstrations, until you start seeing real protests and real anger coming out of really the two cities that matter, uh, St. Peter's, Petersburg and Moscow, um, I think they're, I think Russia's at this point fine. But look, they're, they're, Putin right now is training up 500,000 troops throw back into the meat grinder in Ukraine once the, the, the land thaws in, in April, May. Um, by, 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 by many estimates, their body count right now is anywhere between 75,000 to 100,000 people. Uh, Putin um, initially committed roughly 250,000 people into this Ukraine invasion. If, if you apply those same numbers, that's a lot of body bags coming home. Uh, does that ignite uh, some sort of resentment at home? Um, one would hope so, but Again, um, unless there's a complete breakdown in, 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 in Russian society, I don't see any kind of regime change in, in Russia that's meaningful unless you have a complete collapse. Hey, Hamlet, how much uh, pressure is this Magnitsky uh, putting on the uh, sanctioned uh, wealthy people in, in Russia that support uh, his regime? Should I say that again? The Magnitsky Act okay. that allows targeting of sanctions of uh, wealthy individuals that support Putin, yeah, where their assets get frozen. Look, you're you're looking at two countries that have mastered the whole concept of, of avoiding and, and circumventing sanctions. 
um, it makes it um, demonstrably more more difficult to do business. But it, but I don't think it's an it's an end all be all because you've got to be able to, to put massive resources to sanctioning the entity and, and, and the various different things that they set up to, to, to circumnavigate sanctions. Um, but there's unless a lot you, of unless, unless, you, unless you're willing to fully cut off an entire country uh, from global trade, which I don't think we're ready to do. Um, sanctions, I don't think are gonna, I, I, don't think I, I don't think I have a meaningful impact. Hmm. Emma, you, don't, Mark, you don't think Mark, it's going to wear down the industrial base by by them not being able to source all the all the parts that they need? You would have to you would have to make sure that you're you know, you're you're paying attention to every shell game that they play. Um, is it going to make it more difficult? Yes. Is it going to have a longer term um, whittling effect? Yeah, the potential is definitely there. But in the near term or short term, I don't see that being a major issue. And I, and I just I, I don't see. Like, I hope I'm wrong, but I, I just I, I don't see the West in unison going after um, every every asset, every opportunity um, as it relates well, to sanctions violations to Russia. I hope I'm wrong. So, so what's different about this Magnitsky Act is that it's actually worldwide. There's other uh, or uh, like Australia passed this as well within their government that they can also lock down and freeze assets. Uh, in in court in concert with U.S. government, I mean, there's several countries that are signing on to this, and it's basically freezing assets or, or resources to, uh, in place that they can't use it or or uh, be able to oh. to access their funds or assets from ultra high net worth individuals that are supporting the the Russian uh, current government. Rob Colorado, did you have a question or comment? Well, I've I, I was just going to switch uh, switch mode for a moment, but I, I think Luke's point was well received. And but uh, Mark, um, uh, I was in New York the other day, and I came across some of these Michigan fans. So congratulations on Michigan and Ohio State in the, the final two, uh, final four. They, they may be um, in the final two, by the way. Well, yeah, I, I guess I wanted to hear a little bit from uh, from the sports side and consumer side that it sounds like years here okay people yeah people are kind of getting you know people are going in droves to be supportive and you know i guess they're talking about if they go to the championships in california you know they want to be there but um i mean i'm going to host an event on on if we make it there i'll host an event in irvine on the on the 8th and you can be an honorary michigan alum Well, you know what? Ohio State's got to beat Georgia, which is um, um, not going to be well, regard, easy. Regardless, Michigan's got to beat TCU, and if we do, we do that. We're going there. And, are you are you, uh, going, are you going to invite Penn State alumni to this event, or are they out? Oh well, I think it becomes a Big Ten festival. <laughs> well, we, we might, might, have, have, we might have to have a pick, might have to have like a, a Big Ten pickleball uh, <laughs> type of event. There you go. Well, Penn State's going to take care of the Rose Bowl before you guys get there. <laughs> yeah. Well, just Mark, my, my thoughts are that um, if if in fact Ohio State beats Georgia, Michigan wouldn't want to play a second time. Ohio State has revenge no. in its mind; they would become they the would favorite. Not. They wouldn't. Yeah. No. So, but that, yeah, keep me posted on that. And if not, I, I might have a couple of people to recommend in Southern California to attend. So that's congratulations I, on I, being this far. Absolutely, I might have to. I um, my family got a little sick of it, but I was. It was cold in Miami, so I had to wear my sweatshirt, right? 
And oh my God, I'm probably uh, on the half hour mark. Go blue, go blue. <laughs> and uh, Mark, before we wrap up, I just had wanted to thank Anessa for all the work she does behind the scenes for. Yes, well, yes. she helps me out every week, but the whole community. She helps, she helps uh, me out every every minute. So special, uh, special thanks to Anessa for all she does. She's the, absolutely. She's absolutely. the star of the show. Thank you. I want to come back to the steel point for a moment. And Mark, you said met coal here. Yeah, yeah. Thing. Okay, I, I am pushing an investment idea, and I own some of this, by the way, to be completely straightforward about it. But I urge you to look at something with the symbol METC, which is a Met Coal company, which is extremely cheap. First of all, all coal companies are extremely cheap, but uh, there, there is a distinction between Met Coal and Thermal Coal, obviously, and it means something. Yeah. And uh, second, which is about to distribute in January or February, uh, a spin-off security to all of its stockholders. And I think they've done a very bad job. And this spin-off security will, will, will be a dividend paying or distribution paying security, which will mimic a royalty on a bunch of coal assets that they own and are mining. Mm -hmm. will, and also a tolling fee on some cleaning plants. So it will greatly increase the payout on this stock from, from what will be two securities afterward. The market has no idea what the hell's going on here. The company's done a terrible job of trying to explain it to the market. If you look at the analyst reports, there's nothing even in there about them. So uh, I think this is now, this is a small cap deal. You can't deploy a lot of money into this, you know, on the thing. But I, I think everybody should take a look at it. It trades around, I don't know, nine or 10 or something right now. Mm -hmm. I think um, you've got a shot here at 25 in a few months. So. What was the name of oh. that again? The company's called Ramaco. Ramaco. Well, but what the symbol that? is METC, like Met Coal. So just basically, what's what annual revenues? Annual, uh, either net. Oh, I don't know, that? three or four hundred million of annual revenues, a couple of hundred million of uh, EBITDA, this kind of thing. Mark, not very big, you know. Okay. Trading very okay. cheap on whatever you want to look at. Um, uh, on a price earnings price. rate. Last year is almost 300, 300 revenue, 46, 47 of EBITDA or EBIT. And I'm sure, I assume it's up uh, given where Met Coal prices are. It's been, it was as low as two or two and a half, something like this in the I, very bottom of the code. I, I never think of share price. I think of just enterprise value uh, relative to it's about four market caps, 440. I don't know what, what's the debt uh, for the debt. Pro probably the enterprise with the bottom of the COVID thing was less than a hundred. Right. The yield is decent. 
40, 50, not too much debt relative to less, more, more EBITDA than debt, at least last year. Yeah. And it right. was just incurred to buy just, a, a big, another chunk of Metco reserves, which are adjacent to their existing operation. But you're seeing these kinds of things in the oil and gas industry too, right? That are, that you could. Well, there, there's, uh, I, I'm really long-term. I really love the oil and gas space, Mark, but short-term here, I'm nervous. So there, there, and there's a timing element in, in all this that makes me reluctant to say, geez, go buy some uh, na U.S. natural gas producers right now, because I am concerned about natural gas uh, prices in the States next spring when uh, there, there really isn't going to be any more export capacity for a couple of years here to speak of. And, you know, the, the production is creeping up, creeping up, creeping up. So, uh, so I, I am concerned that this could be weak into the shoulder. You know, and so I don't want to say buy it right now. The Ramico thing, I think you should buy it before they spin off the, the, they do the second, okay. second security. Fair enough. I, I, um, well, we'll, you and I are overdue for a, for a chat. Yep. Um, yep. This is uh, a good week for but it. That's a, he makes a good point, Stephen Burke, for your macro outlook. If, uh, if U.S. natural gas prices and could could fall, I mean, you saw yeah. that actually. Make manufacturing come back even more. Well, they, they have fallen. Let's be straightforward yeah. well, about this. Well, they they fell yeah. partly with that that uh that fire in uh, Louisiana, um, some of that capacity went out and uh, and then it's come back. But I wasn't seeing all the production coming. You're closer to that. So if that is happening. Well, more, more or less, you know, th this is, there's five BCF per day of natural gas production more now than there was 90 days ago, okay? And that's a, you know, that may not seem like a lot, you know, on a hundred million a day or 90 some million a day, but, uh, you know, the, these are markets. When they get a little bit out of balance, they move. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, so. I would, I, well, just what, what, what is our export capacity and are we increasing that? Uh, is that, and it's a longer term infrastructure play but so there, there's nothing really happening between now and 2020 2025 the next two years are relatively dry here got it so so anyway so i you know so my 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 best idea is is ramico resources met coal i think 